Hi, this is Kat Cressida, the voice of the Black Widow Bride, and you are listening to the Tiki Talk Podcast. This week's episode of Enchanted Tiki Talk is brought to you by our proud sponsors at Kingdom Strollers, providing premium stroller and crib rentals, delivered straight to your Disney or Orlando Resort hotel or vacation home free of charge. You choose the time of delivery and pickup, and we do the rest. It couldn't be easier. So book your Kingdom Stroller rental today by visiting KingdomStrollers.com or call 407-271-5301 and at MousePros.com. Let these Disney travel specialists help plan your next Disney vacation. MousePros.com offers free concierge service to help help guide you every step of the way in planning your perfect Disney vacation. Let them sweat the details so you can focus on the fun. Visit mousepros.com for a free no-obligation quote. Ask for Tiki Bird Sean or any of our friendly agents. And now, on with the show. Wahidi Mekioni Mana, ladies and gentlemen, no flashbulbs, please. Our performers are temperamental and easily upset. Thank you for your cooperation. Oh, look at all the people. My goodness, you're all staring at us. We better start the show rolling. Wait, wait. We forgot to wake up the glee club. Hey, howdy, hey, and thank you for joining us here on Enchanted Tiki Talk. We're your hosts. I'm Sean. I'm Keith. And I'm Alan. So grab yourself a Dole Whip, pull up a chair, and enjoy the show. This is episode 131 for the week of April 24th, 2016. This week we are honored to have acclaimed voice actress Kat Cressida in the Tiki Hut. You recognize Kat as the voice of Constance in the Haunted Mansion. However, if you're a gamer, sports fan, or fan of cartoons, you will also know of her amazing work. So welcome, Kat. Thanks, Kat, for coming on. You're welcome. <laughs> this is really exciting. It's 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 we love the we love when we get the opportunity to talk to any voice actor because they never get the recognition that they, they deserve, but especially when you get to talk to somebody who's actually a voice in the park. I mean, that's quite an accomplishment for anybody, to be honest with you. So thank you for, for coming on and, and gracing us with your presence. Well, thank you for that very warm intro. But I have to be honest and say, I've been overwhelmed by the attention that's been thrown. So I um, <laughs> I, I feel like the fans are, you know, the fans of the parks and animation and the video games that I'm lucky to be a part of. I feel like we do get the acknowledgments these days. It's uh, sometimes a lot to balance along with all the other response, you know, like the real responsibilities of doing the voiceovers, all the awesome fan fests and the cons and E3 and D23 and WonderCon. And so I'm giving, I'm giving the fans the credit they deserve. They definitely have been acknowledging and I'm, I'm appreciative about that. It's also pretty neat, unique for you, though, is that you can go into the park and people aren't going to recognize you, which is, I guess, in some ways, that's a good thing. But maybe you want the recognition for that. But that's that's got to be crazy just to think that, OK, so you're, you're walking into just say for Disneyland and you could be randomly sitting next to somebody on the doom buggy. It's not really going to happen, but if they have to put you on somebody at the new buggy and the part of your voice camp is Constance. I mean, the person next to you might not have any idea that it's you. So that's got to be crazy. I think it'd be crazy if they put me on a doom buggy with a total stranger. Yeah. yeah what? <laughs> <laughs> that would be crazy. Um, so fortunately, usually I'm on a doom buggy with someone who does know that it's me. But, um, but yes, I, I do know what you're saying and, the experience of being sort of, you know, for want of a better word, anonymous is um, certainly not a pro- not a problem for me. It's why I took myself um, gratefully out of on camera back in the uh, late '90s, and why I so much wanted to be a part of voiceover was it affords, particularly for females, particularly back then, the opportunity to be so much more than what your looks reflected. Because in on camera, particularly back then, it was, uh, you know, you got pigeonholed right. based on how you looked. And I always seemed to fall in the category of the spunky, cute girl next door, best friend, college grad. You know, that was, and, uh, and you never got to really play out. I rarely got a chance to play outside that sandbox and was grateful for a tremendous, really, I mean, uh, I say tremendous, I mean, compared to so many people I know who are so deeply gifted and come out here and don't succeed in on camera. I was very fortunate and very blessed to do 
a ton of great guest stars and roles, but had figured out after three years that I just really preferred um, to be on the other side of the glass and to get a chance to be all kinds of roles and voices and characters and having come from musical comedy and Shakespeare and, you know, summer stock, that's getting a chance to try on all different masks was much more appealing to me. So um, to go back to your original point, it doesn't, doesn't bother me in the slightest <laughs> to walk into the park and not have people staring or coming up or interrupting the, the experience. Um, I, I get I get recognized at the mansion because the cast members do an exceptional job, particularly at, at that attraction. There, right. you know, a lot of the people who work at the Haunted Mansion have requested to work at the mansion. They want to be wearing that cast member butler maid uniform. <laughs> And they, they're deep steeped into the history and knowledge, and they've all read the, the cast member notes. So I get recognized there, but I'm totally fine with nobody having a clue. <laughs> but if I ever do end up sitting next to a stranger on a doom buggy, besides from being creeped out that they did that, <laughs> I probably would keep my mouth shut and let them enjoy the experience. <laughs> I think I would as well. <laughs> So let's take a step back, and we know you used to spend a lot of time at Disneyland as a kid. So yeah. what were some of your early memory, memories of being in the park, and how did that seed your love for Disney? That's a really good question. And I get asked oftentimes, why does, why does playing in the Disney sandbox make me so euphoric and happy? And I think it's like all of us as human beings, something that deeply touched us before we even had a chance to put it into words or language always stays with us. And for some people, that's sports or dance or music. I felt I feel like I learned the language of the backstage and imagining and you know the show experience before I really even understood what that was. So it always makes me feel happy, like I'm going back to that pure, trouble-free, blissful experience of being a kid at the park. And uh, no matter how challenging the gig. These days, it's still, if it's Disney, it always feels like, yeah, but I'm getting back in touch with something whole and pure and healthy for myself. I loved it. And uh, I'm so sorry. I was trying to answer your question authentically, and then I just got, took myself, did I, did I start to answer it? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. You did. Throw it at me again. Throw it, throw it at me again. You want what to say it again? Like, as a kid? Yeah, what, you your, your early memories of being in the park and how did that seize your love for Disney? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess I pretty much just answered it. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, it was, um, it fell right in that formative time, you know, I think uh, age four to eight, when you're starting to understand language, you're starting to put labels to things. You know, you know what something is on a, on an intrinsic gut level but you don't necessarily know the name for it. So you know what music is, and that it makes you happy and makes you move, and it's got a rhythm and a beat, and that it, it differs and makes you feel different things, but you don't necessarily know that the word is M-U-S-I-C, right? Right. Um, and I think that's what it was for me, was sitting sitting on the park, on the Main Street benches, you know, and my dad would have meetings down at the park, and having a coloring book and having a little journal and enjoying <laughs> Frozen bananas have always been my jam. <laughs> Love with those. Um, and hopefully for very pure childlike reasons. I thought that they were amazing. And um, and so gnawing on, on one of those and just really taking in everything that Main Street has to offer, which is multi-leveled, multi-textured in a lot of ways, and um, as a sensory experience, I think just lit me up like a pinball machine. I think I, I really got that just outside the gate, literally at Disneyland, it's feet. It's not that not that far from and ducking under the little you know tunnel under the railroad where the plaque says you know here you leave behind and enter the world of well famous words induction words, and then literally you're in Main Street, and the atmosphere is completely different. It's it's really cool, kind of almost like. Let's see if this analogy holds up. Like when you're in a swimming pool and all the kids are playing and thrashing and you hear the parents and there's music and then you duck under the water and everything's got a different feeling. Right, right. It kind of had that feeling of 
okay, we just left the main gate and outside, and now we're completely immersed inside the experience of Main Street USA. And I really picked up on that. And probably because my dad was coaching it and, and narrating and explaining and pointing at the windows and the names and the background ADR and the music. And someone early on said a fact to me that I still repeat to guests <laughs> as if it's the most brilliant piece of trivia in the world. But, but Main Street is one of the few places in any of the Disney parks where you're going to hear non-Disney music. It was enchanting. It, it was you know, like going into the underworld mermaid lagoon world of the swimming pool, ducking under, and suddenly you're a mermaid in a completely different world. Suddenly you're on Main Street in a completely different world, and that just stuck with me. And I think I carried that forward, you know, going into theater, understanding that no matter what was going on in your real world, the moment you stepped out on the floorboards, with the grease paint and, and took on whatever character you were, you were in a completely different world and you were safe and happy and it was your playground for the next however long the play was. You know, when you're a kid, they're probably 10 minutes long, but right. they seem like they're two hours. And then you've got Shakespeare and they're three and a half hours. So <laughs> that was a very thorough answer, but I hope that that helped. Oh, yeah. That analogy is actually perfect. I had never I thought of it that way until you said that, but it is true. You did say that, that you um, enjoyed Shakespeare and stuff a lot. You were ultimately drawn to the theater. Where did that a passion for Shakespeare start? Wow. Well, I'm sure that it started on some, you know, subconscious level earlier, or else I wouldn't have taken to it the way that I did. My first conscious experience of it was pretty unique and fascinating. Uh, I still, when I tell the story... And I say it out loud, I have to remind myself how bizarre and unique it was, especially for a Todd in America, because Shakespeare's not exactly the go-to for a young kid to get uh, caught up in. But I'd always loved storytelling. And my dad, one of my earliest memories back when I was a little girl, maybe three years old, four years old, was sitting on a little wooden stool while he was shaving and shaving his face which to a little girl is always fascinating. <laughs> You're seeing the fluffy cream and it's going on the face and dad's pulling something across his face and suddenly it's all smooth. You know, it's, it's a very interesting sensory experience. So I think I was fascinated by that. And he would have me read to him while I was sitting on the stool. I wasn't just allowed to hang out. Always I had to be doing something creative or productive. And we had those giant golden books, the oversized ones that they used to have back in the, 70s, and maybe it wasn't that, but to me it was huge, because I was four, but I remember reading Pinocchio and Cinderella and Peter Pan. He would stop, he would interrupt me, so I'd be going along in the story, and he would interrupt me and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what did Jimmy say then? What happened? Oh, okay, I missed that part, and I think that was his way of getting me to slow down and really enjoy the story and not just rush through it. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I think that planted a seed in me that words, language, and how you delivered it actually mattered. Because he would, and of course he was being a dad, and exaggerating the joy of hearing a a full sentence from his four-year-old taught daughter. But he would get so excited when I explained, you know, that the dove dropped a letter from the sky and Jimmy read it and... (laughs) You know, he and Pinocchio decided to build a fire. And I just remember he made such a a drama out of those moments and me reading them back. But that really stuck, that language and how you told a story could completely alter one's emotions and have effect on one's emotions. And I guess, again, the way some kids are drawn to dancing or music or computers or whatever it is, that a young person gravitates to, for me, that was it, with language. So I think that kind of set the stage. And then I was as bored with Shakespeare as every young kid could be. When you read it flat on the page, I mean, that's some boring-ish, right? It's mm-hmm. just flat words, and they're in a weird rhyming pattern that don't necessarily even rhyme some, most of the time. So if you haven't had it explained to you or introduced to you properly, it, it's quite bizarre. And I think... I must have been 15, junior high. 
Um, we had an unusual high school. It was it was four grades, not three, just like college. So summer that I was supposed to start my new high school, we just moved out to Southern California from New York. So it was still kind of a outsider. And I took a summer, a couple of summer prep courses just to kind of learn the culture, learn the students. Uh, we'd already figured out that I was a little bit ahead. Just back east was a little bit more ahead than Southern California. <laughs> no surprise <laughs> in terms of some of the uh, some of the materials. But I wanted to make some friends, feel safe when school started, not quite so scary and overwhelmed. So I took some some prep classes, and one of them was. Um, I think it was Introduction to Theater 101 or some, something like that, um, meant for the freshman level. And it was a prep class that it, you had to take it. It was mandatory to be able to audition to get into the general theater arts class that was shared by all grades. There was a master class. It's hard to explain, but my, my high school took theater quite seriously, being in Southern California, and we were very blessed to have quite a program. So if I'm... I don't want to bore people listening to your podcast, but very quickly, you had to audition to get into this general master class, and it was shared by all the different grades, different levels, and you would, uh, you know, study great American, mostly great American playwrights, Eugene O'Neill, Tennessee, you know, all that, mm-hmm. all the traditional stuff. And it was very prestigious to get into it. If you wanted to get into it as a freshman, you had to take this prep class the summer before so that you would be eligible to audition. And most freshmen, of course, didn't because they were doing other things during the summer. Therefore, the master class mostly just had sophomores through seniors. So, but really Miss Ambitious, <laughs> I've got nothing else to do this summer in Southern California. Um, I took this, <laughs> this prep class. And Mr. John Engel, you can Google him. Because after he was done teaching at my high school, 25 years of turning people into celebrities, he decided to go pursue his own on-camera career and did amazingly well. Oh, wow. <laughs> Rocked it and beca- became the patriarch on some top soap opera. I can't remember which one. But he became like the scary, rich patriarch on one of the soap operas. And then he went on to become a... a featured player and a guest on tons of television and he was in Heather's and he was in, he was in a bunch of movies back in the early nineties. I think it was John Engel, really gorgeous, charismatic, lovely human being who literally had shepherded several young people into becoming successful Hollywood actors. And he was teaching this class by default. It was a fluke. And he opened up, there was not very many people in this class, as you can imagine. It's summer in Southern California. Do the math. Not many of us were staying indoors. (laughs) But I was kind of, I think, intimidated and a a nerd, obviously, a big nerd. And he opened up the class. He walked in, very dramatic. He walks in, makes eye contact with all five of us or six of us in the class, and puts some books down on on the desk. And the, the, we were in the music room. That's where this class was, where the first part of it was going to be before we moved to the theater. We had to prove ourselves worthy of being in the theater space. So we were just in the music choral room. And he begins talking to us, making eye contact, really conversing with us. But he's delivering the opening monologue, prologue of Henry V. Oh, for a music fire, that would have sounded the greatest, greatest heaven of invention. That famous one, which I won't bore the listeners anywhere with this prologue, but <laughs> it's a beautiful one. Kenneth Bonnick, of course, uh, brought it to life in his version of Henry V. And if any, anybody out there is at all familiar with what that prologue opening narration is saying, it's very Walt Disney. It's very much like when that book cracks open at the beginning of the classic animation and starts to tell you a story and invites you to lift the story off the page into your imagination and let it come to life. And, and literally, that's what the words of this prologue are. It's basically begging the audience, back in Shakespeare's day, to indulge us poor actors with hardly any budget, bad costumes, bad sets, bad writing. Forgive us, but if you'll indulge us for the next three hours, we will try to bring a magnificent story to life in front of your eyes. That's what that prologue says. I, I'm getting chills just saying it. And Mr. Engel is standing there talking to 15-year-olds 
you know, following Shakespeare, but making eye contact and delivering it in a very contemporary manner. So we know that he's talking to us. We know that he's speaking. We have probably very little clue what it is that he's actually saying, but we're getting the gist of it because of how beautifully he's, and simply he's delivering it. He's not saying it like a pompous, British, snooty lesbian. He's talking to us like peers, and he finishes it. <laughs> and I think, you know, of course, we probably didn't applaud. We probably didn't know what to do. He looks at us and says, does anybody have any idea what I just said? <laughs> Bueller? Anyone? Bueller? <laughs> and um, I'm not sure who spoke first, or, but we started throwing out what we thought. And he, of course, being a fantastic teacher that he was, got very enthusiastic and very impassioned and I was like, yes, that's exactly right. When I said the giant O, the wide opening yawn, that's exactly right. It's the wide open theater space. And when I said this, that's exactly right. And why did Shakespeare, why does he use these, these words instead of just saying wide open space? And he kind of took us on this whole opening class. Part of my brain is going, what the heck did I sign up for? I have no idea what this is leading to. I thought I was signing up for musical comedy. But part of me was fascinated. And he said something somewhere in that whole fabulous opening class, that language, how, how one chooses the words they choose and how they choose to express it makes all the difference in the world in terms of communication. You can please somebody, bring joy to them, entice them, turn them on, infuriate them, put them off, bring sadness, just by how you deliver something. And of course, that's psychology 101 too, but it was fascinating to me. And the first time that I viewed language so thoroughly, and I loved the fact that it was like, you know, kids love codes and puzzles and solving mysteries. Shakespeare, in order to crack a scene, you have to do some translation first. You have to actually go through line by line using a dictionary and a, a glossary that tells you what these terms meant back in Shakespeare's day. And there was nothing cooler than discovering that a scene that looked all lofty and snotty and arrogant and, and closed was all about sexual foreplay. That was pretty heavy stuff for a kid. Right. To know that they were just bantering and being playful and flirty. Really amazing stuff. Wow. I'm so sorry you guys are inspiring me to just go on and on. And I <laughs> hope that your listeners are at all interested in this. Cause I <laughs> don't I'm sure they are. I mean, well, we are. So, <laughs> so it was this love of Shakespeare and ultimately meeting, you know, a Shakespeare idol in Michael York that kind of helped push you towards voice acting. Can you kind of tell us about you know, meeting one of your idols and how he helped you? Uh, get towards you know what what you do so well right now uh, as a voice actress. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much it. Was I was lucky to um, do a guest star role with Michael York. I was playing his inappropriately too young, inappropriately too young fiance on a, on a pilot for NBC with Tara Leone, fabulous actress, and she was dating David Duchovny at the time, so that was really cool because um, he was you know, really hot from the X-Files. And it was the, the first week of the of the season. So we were with the director, and the director was a very famous, very famous TV director, done Cheers and a number of other NBC successful sitcoms. And he insisted on, it's unusual in the, in the TV sitcom world, but he insisted on the, the leads, the actual lead actors, be on set for all the camera blocking. Traditionally, the stand-ins do that, and they wear little signs around their neck that right. say the, the actor's name, and they camera block and they figure things out, and then once they've kind of got it down, then they call in the actual actors to learn the blocking that's already been worked out, but because this was a new series, it was there's a lot of stunts, uh, physical comedy that was going to go on, because Taylor Lane was great with physical comedy. It's great, you know, great comedic actress, very Lucille Ballish. And so they wanted to work things out with all of us actually there. But as it turns out, they got stuck on the one set piece that involved a um, room service uh, delivery cart. They were working that for several hours, it felt like. And 
my the reveal for my character and Michael York is that we're in a giant. We're supposed to be in a luxury suite at the Beverly Hills Hotel in a giant bed set, you know. And I was stuck in that bed set for hours, just waiting for them to get to the part where Taylor rolls over the room service cart onto the bed, flops over on it, and she was supposed to have been married to Michael York before they were divorced. So anyway. <laughs> Um, because I was stuck in that situation and next to Michael York, stuck, I put that in quotes. Uh, I was very nervous because I hadn't been a Shakespeare geek, particularly back in the um, late 90s. Uh, I grew up on Zeffirelli's, you know, renderings of Shakespeare, um, which, of course, had now been replaced by Leonardo DiCaprio and other people taking a stab at it. But um, he was quite a heartthrob back in the, and, and I was too young for it, but he was, uh, by the time I got around to seeing it, he was older, but back when he did Romeo and Juliet, I think he was all of 19, playing um, Mercutio, no, not Mercutio, I'm sorry, Tibble, the bad cousin, the evil cousin. So again, I probably lost most of your audience, but most Americans knew him from Logan's Run. Yeah, right? oh, you're right. Yeah. For the, what? Yes, yep. Yeah. Not familiar with that. Yeah. And and a number of other guest stars and roles, and he was still doing a lot of theater in England. Most charming, worldly, fabulous gentleman in the world. And by the time I finally got the courage to speak to him, it was probably like the second day. And we just started talking about, I'm sure I blurted out that, of course, I'd studied him and Shakespeare in high school and that. I still loved it, and he was a sweetheart and said, well, we're stuck in the bed tomorrow. Why don't you bring your, why don't you bring some Shakespeare? Maybe we'll do it together. So <laughs> sweet. Um, it's like Stanley inviting me to read some comic books out loud together. Or something. Right. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> again, I'm sure from a lot of your audience are like, that sounds like the most boring thing in the world. But it was <laughs> Michael York, rock star of Shakespeare, still gorgeous fabulous British dialect, and now I'm getting to read out loud with him some of these scenes while we're stuck in this bed set. And he signed my little Riverside, my giant Riverside Shakespeare, That's the giant tomb that you have to uh, to buy if you major in Shakespeare. And um, yeah, <laughs> and then from that, we started talking about the fact that I wasn't really loving on camera acting the way I thought I should if I was going to be doing this for the rest of my life, and what other options, and it was maybe too late for me to move to New York and start a career all over again as a starving young lesbian on Broadway. And he's the one who, who sug sorry, suggested voiceover. So thank you, Michael York. And I got to work with him, actually. Um, we did a documentary that came out of a, Sp a Steven Spielberg Holocaust project for the Holocaust Museum, and it, it won an Oscar. I always, The Long Road Home. The Long Way Home or The Long Road Home. We both were narrators on it. Okay. It was one of my very first voiceover jobs. And I, I walked out of the booth as Michael York was walking into the booth. And, you know, there's handlers around him, so I couldn't exactly say, oh, God, pretty cool. So, so speaking of voice acting, Didi, you were Didi on Dexter's Lab. How did you get that role? Is it because I just got shrill that you thought of that question? <laughs> Actually, I did, yeah. did help the jerk. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, there it is. <laughs> Um, that was a complete fluke, and I got very lucky, um, truly. I mean, I'd been taking classes for about a year and a half, and they were very difficult, but I loved them because they were so difficult. And, um, and I signed, I got signed by a small, small voiceover agent, really not one of the big ones at all, but she was very sweet. She said, let's try it out. We'll turn you on some auditions, see how it goes. It's pretty much... Back in the day, that's how you had to get started, was hopefully just get signed by somebody and get a chance to audition and maybe luck out and book something. And it was only, I think it only been with her a couple of months, and it was for a voice match. Um, because anybody who know, if anybody knows the story of Dexter's Laboratory, I'm not assuming anybody does, but it was Andy Tartakovsky's um, thesis project from CalArts. <laughs> he went to the same school that, of course, John Lasseter and so many of the great Pixar people went to. And as his graduate thesis project, he had to do a three-minute animated something, cartoon. 
that was it was Dexter's laboratory, and his girlfriend in, at CalArts was the voice of Dee Dee. Because of course, you know, you're in college, you're just like, hey, do a voice for this, you know. So um, once Cartoon Network picked up the series, I don't think they picked it up for a giant or I think I think it started out as like, okay, we're going to do the pilot and produce it professionally, and we'll see how that does, and then, okay, we'll do three shows and see how those do. And they, they took it much slower back in the day, and this is when Hanna-Barbera was still actively involved with Cartoon Network, and through, through Turner, I think Turner had bought Hanna-Barbera, Hanna-Barbera was creating Cartoon Network, and it did well enough that after the three series, they moved on to a larger order. Maybe 13? I don't, I don't know. But at that point, the gal who was the original voice had already decided she didn't want to be a voice actress. She wanted to go to Broadway, was the story I was told. <laughs> and so the, the whole town auditioned as a voice match to the original character. Interesting. And you did have to mention and stuff, and all of us know, of what a high-pitched voice Dee Dee had. Is there, like, a secret to keeping a voice like healthy? I mean, after day's worth of doing that voice i'm sure that you need some rest and but is there like a routine that you do um after the recording sessions no no routine wow (laughs) that's impressive (laughs) so how did you end up getting involved with disney as a voice actress um the same way anybody does just do auditions that's it yeah yeah i i started in you know auditioning for things back in the mid to late 90s and didn't really get any didn't get a lot of traction for the first three or four years um dd was a a fluke you know in in terms of how things can go it was sort of beginner's luck voice matching her and being the lucky person who got selected but it took me many 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 more years to figure out all the different aspects of voiceover and how to continue to compete in it because just you know, booking one job obviously um, is great, but it doesn't guarantee a career. Right. As as so many actors could unfortunately attest to. So you have to uh, learn so many other parts of the business, and whatever requires you to be, for the most part, very versatile and adaptable, and keep growing and learning and being able to do more than just one voice. So it seems like you also have to be like a salesman or saleswoman to keep and maintain roles throughout the years. You, you really have to be able to sell your, your services, whatever they may be. You mean in terms of auditioning? Right, yeah. Yeah, I don't think – that doesn't feel like selling. Um, I think so. I thought you were saying, you know, I have to go out and schmooze and – No, so, no, no, no. So. <laughs> <laughs> you are constantly auditioning. Okay. And um, even for things that you think you already, you know, you can get on a campaign, be the voice of McDonald's for a while, and maybe the new advertising agency that takes it over decides maybe they want to change. Maybe they don't. And you end up going right back and auditioning for what you've already been doing for a year. It's um, fiercely competitive. I'm going to say all the obvious cliches that everybody says, so I don't want to bore your audience, but it's uh, it's an ongoing audition. And, and we, Say all the time. Most of us say all the time, "My job is the audit. My job is auditioning. Okay. That's what takes me from nine o'clock in the morning and sometimes until two in the morning." Wow! Is all the auditions. Um, and these days, to be compet- stay competitive, for the most part, most of us have home studios, and we're doing so many auditions out of our home studio, and so we're expected to not just be the voice talent, but also the the engineer, the recorder, the editor. And then to upload it, right? And have to sound good <laughs> or clean, you know, sound, sound like a good professional recording. Gotcha. So yeah, <laughs> that's and these are all great questions. But that's why when whenever you talk to somebody who's out outside of the industry who doesn't really have people they're close to who are uh, making their livelihood in some form of acting or performing. Almost the immediate response when you say what you do for when I say what I do for a living is, oh my god, that sounds so fun! What right. a cool, what a cool job! What a great, you know, God, it just sounds like you just have a blast. And I don't know what image they have in their head. Uh, maybe they're going off of those behind the scene videos that you see of celebrities. Probably, yeah, probably. Yeah, 
because, you know, the studios put these out and make it look like it's so effortless. They're just standing at the microphone, being themselves, having a blast. And they, the celebrities are. I mean, that's they're getting hired to sound like themselves and to be 100% be their personality. But for the most part, voice talent, we're getting hired for the opposite reason. Or not the opposite, but we're definitely not being hired just to be ourselves. <laughs> Nobody knows who we are. Um, we're being hired to fulfill the, the job, the character, whatever, the campaign, whatever it is that we're doing. Does that make sense? Yes. It does. So, yeah, we spend a, a great deal of our days auditioning, auditioning, and if you had a go cam on some of my days, I mean, you can finish the audition, load it up, feel great, move on to the next five scripts, and then suddenly you get a panic email. Wait, they just changed the specs on this. Now they need four more lines. Uh, You're just like, it becomes a mess. You're literally Uh, like in the middle of nine projects. And they could be, when I say, and they could be like video games, McDonald's commercials, Hmm. Budweiser commercials, a new thing for a new Disney Interactive something or other, um, a promo for NBC. You're all over the map in terms of what kind of voiceover it can be, so you become very schizophrenic. You're literally changing hats and personalities and voices constantly throughout the day. (laughs) That's crazy. It is crazy. (laughs) It's definitely crazy. And my floor is littered with scripts. And um, trying to find this, you know, I printed out the specs for this one. No, 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 this one's supposed to be 25, and Sal Mike's going with Joe Nielsen. Wait a second, where's the copy for that? It was the Nestle Project. No, wait, <laughs> I think it was the Mother's Day one for Telefora. It's literally, it's a job. Like, it literally is a job like every other awesome, amazing job. There's a lot of, I don't want to call it, I don't want to, um, what's the word? Uh, besmirch it. I don't want to make it sound like it's, right, right. you know, when I get that we're very fortunate we're using words and emotions and technology, we're not doing something else. But it's it can get as overwhelmingly chaotic and messy and frustrating and overwhelming as every other job in, right. in the industry is. Right. Or any job anybody has, really. Yes. I mean, it's it's just... It's a job to you, just like like I'm a network administrator at my company, and it gets tedious. Things change all the time, and you just adapt and and try to do your best. It's sort of the same thing. It just your career is your is your voice. Yeah, and the way that I try to describe it to people who are having, who, and you just said that beautifully, and that's very true. Um, our tools, for want of a better way to put it, are our emotions. We're needing to call upon our emotions. They have to be right up at the surface, and we have to be able to draw on them instantly so that if we're in a session and the director says, I just think it's much more relaxing. Really chill it out. Just be warm, relaxed, breezy, summer day. You have to instantly go from wherever you were and grab that tool and make sure that it translates properly on the words that they've given you um, without scrubbing the line. And you're going to use some days, by the time I'm done, I will have painted from my emotional palette 89 colors, maybe. Wow. And used many, many, many different tools and many parts of my my voice, my register. You know, this one with texture, this one without. This one's supposed to sound 35. This one's supposed to sound 60. This one's supposed to sound 12. That's. Again, I'm very fortunate. I don't want anybody to feel that I'm complaining, but it's exhausting at the end of the day because you're not, it's not that I'm just doing whatever I want. I'm not improvising and relaxing and playing. I'm delivering what's being demanded of me at the moment it's being demanded. And sometimes there's things like time constraints too. We love that read, Kat. That was great. Still want you to sound relaxed and sunny and breezy, but you got to show about five seconds. Right, okay. No pressure. Um, And they expect you to be able to deliver because you're the professional. They don't expect you to be trying it out while they're on the line live with you spending hundreds of dollars for the ISDN feed. That you're supposed to just do it. Right. So I'm not complaining. I don't want anybody to this. I'm so blessed. But. for anybody who's ever dreamed, oh, it'd be so cool to do voiceover. It is, but you got to love it so much. <laughs> the, 
that you are there day in, day out through all of the mess and the crazy frustration and so that I can make everybody else in the world feel great because they deserve to, the rejection, the constant heartbreak, because that is definitely a part of choosing to be a performer, definitely. So you bring up, you know, celebrities being hired to be themselves and, and you are, you know, hired to not be yourself. But at the same time, you know, jobs like Pardon the Interruption has, has brought you a certain level of fans. You know, we're fans. We, we know your work. Is Does that surprise you, you know, you not being a, a Tom Hanks or an Eddie Murphy, you know, these big time celebrities who get hired to be themselves? Does it surprise you that, you know, what you've done and the work you've done, the level of fandom that comes from, doing a voiceover for a 30-minute sports show, like part of the interruption. I'm so sorry. Does it surprise me that... The, the level of fandom that comes from something that some people might look at it and go, okay, she's, she does voiceover for this 30-minute sports show, you know, that people, you're not you're not named in the... Sure. Uh, you know, you're not named in the, 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 sure. the credits necessarily, but people know you from that. You know, we know you from that. Does that, does that level surprise you when you go in... You know, you've been talking about how this is a job to you and this is a passion, but you do get a certain celebrity from it, right? You're so sweet. I mean, yes, absolutely. Um, as we've all already acknowledged many times over, not nearly anywhere close to the same universe as a Tom Hanks or, you know, Julia Roberts. And because we're, um, we're not filling out roles in 3D and Technicolor, in live action, so we're not recognizable that way. And there are, I mean, there are some voice talent who over the years have, you know, just blasted through and, and become very well-known. Uh, I don't know if someone's aunt in Poughkeepsie would necessarily recognize them, but certainly a lot of pop culture mainstream would know some of those people, deservedly so. So, I mean, I guess if you're, I'm sorry, I guess if you're asking, does it surprise you that people are big fans of voiceover or that they recognize PTI, I think it's great. I don't think it's a reflection per se on me. And that's not me trying to sound all humble or like, you know, like the athlete from Bull Down saying, I'm just happy to be part of the team. You know, <laughs> I, I'm not trying to give false political diplomatic throwback, but um, I think it's much more a reflection on the show and the incredible work of Wilbon and Kornheiser than anything, you know, and the producers and the creators of the show, I am very fortunate that I was the voice that got selected, you know, 11, 12 years ago for it. And I'm very fortunate to be the voice of, incredibly fortunate to be the voice of the Black Widow Bride. And thanks to you guys for not making that the main part of it. <laughs> so great stuff. <laughs> and not, you know, be the same retread of all of that awesomeness, although it is special and magical and Dear to my heart, maybe in another year I'll talk all over about that all over again, but that's incredible and such an honor. And and it is nice when people recognize you, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm a human being. Someone comes up and says, you did great. I love that. Of course that makes you feel great, the way with any job that you do that you love doing and that you're passionate about doing. But I don't think I ever, <laughs> you know, you hear that famous, cautionary tale about celebrities. Don't buy into your own publicity. Don't. There's not really a fear of that in my world because we're auditioning every day anyway, right? I mean, I may get, I, I get nice offers, definitely at this point, having done it for 17 years, knowing people, being lucky enough to know people who've moved up. And, and of course, people come back to you, re repeat clients or buyers or, um, it, you know what I'm saying? You're, you're at all right. levels of it. You're always auditioning right. for the new stuff. You're getting invited back to old stuff. I'm certainly known by certain, you know, Radio Disney and Disney Channel and Cat. We'd love to have you on this and yay, awesomeness. But as I've already said, most of our day is spent auditioning, which is a constant reminder to you that you can't take it for granted and you have to keep working hard at it and keep proving that there's that you deserve to be a part of it and worthy of it. So I'm usually never in any danger of buying into all of the fun stuff. Uh, I just, as some people know, as you guys know, I just got onto social media 
I just joined the conversation uh, last summer. I was sort of forced to because of E3 and being on some panels and not having any Twitter presence whatsoever, which was astonishing to the people who invited me to be on panels. But uh, very quickly, through, through the help of a great social media manager and a great little team, learned very quickly and am on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and, and it's going fantastic. I'm so honored by some of the influencers and artists and, you know, have an Imagineer suddenly start saying things to me on Twitter. It's like, woo! And, you know, Marvel heroes just said, great job, Kat, on Electra. You know, that was that's so cool. Thank you to Marvel for that shout-out. But you're aware that people have this perception of you and that they're excited about the characters you've been lucky enough to voice, but I never mistake it for they're huge fans of me. They're, they're fans of the character, you know, that particular universe, whatever that is. And I, I think I say this all the time. Um, Harrison Ford absolutely deserves every bit of worship. Are you kidding? If I walked by him I'm, at the Disney lot, I'd fall to my knees. Indiana Jones, Han Solo. <laughs> God. Or Daniel Craig, you know. Oh, my God. These people are... are I feel the same way about them as everybody else does. They're, they're deities in a certain sense. But we've seen them completely inhabit characters, haven't we? Over years, over decades. And they deserve that voiceover talent. And I mean, no diss to all oh, the brilliant voice talent that I'm lucky to learn from, know, pass in the hallway on the way into my audition. We're, we, we're on the job, most of us for a few hours for a lot of the jobs and then we're on to the next thing. And we may come back for those next few hours next week, but we're not the creators. We're not responsible for the brilliant dialogue, the brilliant songs, the incredible animation, the incredible imagineering. We're not. The people who deserve the deification and, and the incredible amount of attention is the creators. You kind of touched on the Marvel Heroes interactive game, and I saw the trailer uh, this afternoon, and it looks really, really fun, and can't wait to get on and download it. But you also are part of the survival of Master of Orion. How special is that to be involved in the resurgence of this game that has had like fans for like since the '80s? A game was huge, and it's a big, like star-studded cast that they did. What was that like? To part of the resurgence of that game. Honestly, I mean, it's it's an honor to have been brought onto it. I don't I don't know too much about it, truthfully. I mean, it's this speaks to what I was just saying. You know, you get you're lucky to be hired. You're lucky to voice it. You have a great time voicing it. They have the vision, so you're following their lead. Mm-hmm. And I did see the amazing video that they put out with um, all the great fantasy celebrities and sci-fi celebrities, including, of course, Mark Hamill, Jesus of of science fiction. Right. <laughs> so, um, it's an honor, but truthfully, I don't really know that much about the game, other than knowing that it, it was a classic in the 90s and that it's a reboot. And I don't think it's even released yet, so... Um, there's a pre-release that came out for diehard fans who wanted to buy the preview or the early version of it or the preview version of it, but I don't think it's really been reviewed yet. I think it comes out closer to E3. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to be authentic in my answer, and I don't know too much about it other than that it was an honor to be a part of. And obviously anything where I get to be in a video with Mark Hamill is just phenomenal. <laughs> Kat, we appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, every guest that comes on the show, we we give them the five, the same five questions called the Tiki Lightning Round, mm-hmm. and it's just uh, so they can get to understand you a little bit more, more when it comes to you know the Disney parks and, and Disney in general. So sure. the first question is your favorite snack in the parks. <laughs> I already answered that. Yeah, bananas. <laughs> <laughs> the bananas. <laughs> your favorite right. attraction. I. Need to be totally honest, and I say this to everybody: I don't have one, and that's not me trying to be diplomatic. It changes; it totally changes because some years I am, you know, host people and tour guide them and take them on tons, and see the same thing many, many times in a year. 
and then and then I eventually will miss it if I stop going. That that's the truth. The top five that I'm on is that okay to answer? Sure. Yeah. I mean, sure. that's that's uh, that's totally honest answer saying that it changes. So I I can totally understand that. Yeah. I mean, it really does. Yeah. The, the part of the park that that I love and that I miss with my whole soul is Tom Sawyer Island, as it was when I was growing up. I miss that in my bones. It was where I loved going. All the tunnels and bridges and tree houses and the fort, Fort Wilderness, and all of it, which has been shuttered. You know, was shuttered. At least 10 years ago, and of course, they then added some pirate stuff to bring in Pirates of the Caribbean, and they changed the whole tune of it um, that way. And then it's just little by little, it's closed and shuttered and closed and shuttered, and now it's completely closed while they're doing the Star Wars, Star Wars Land. So um, I miss that. Loved Bear Country Jamboree growing up at Disneyland. <laughs> I love that show. <laughs> That's one of my favorite shows. And oh my God. Brilliant, right? Brilliant voice work. Yeah. Oh my God. And when I got to do a voiceover session with Pete Renaday, that was probably a funny thing to film mm-hmm. because I lost my ish. I was standing next to Henry and I could not believe it. <laughs> um, so let's see. Pirates, of course, brilliant. Hubbley Burrow. I mean, just incredible, deep, atmospheric. And I thought I would hate the, the um, not the overlay, the remodel. Right. I was one of the people that was upset when they talked about putting, threatened to put in Johnny Depp, Jack Sparrow. I think they did a brilliant job with it. And my favorite part is the, um, I don't know if they have, you know, I don't know how much it all got changed in Florida, uh, truthfully. But in the Disneyland version, you go into this wide open, cavernous battle between um, the, the ship, the battleship, the pirate ship, which is now supposed to be the Black Pearl. It wasn't when I was a kid, but now it's the Black Pearl. <laughs> and the forts, the fortresses with the cannons, and there's, you know, explosions going on in the water. Do you guys have that? Yes. 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 With the music from the movie. Yep. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get chills every time we get to that part with the fog and everything. So I love that. Um, Peter Pan's Flight. Because it always good makes one. me like, what? That's a good one, yeah. Yeah, always. And um, those are, I guess that's my number four. I guess that's my top four. That's fine. <laughs> that works. Um, loved the Disney Gallery when it was open. Now, now it's closed. I'm still loving it. Love ducking into Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. Always love Space Mountain. People are always sad that I don't say Haunted Mansion, but truthfully, I have had to go on that attraction now <laughs> in the past <laughs> five years, ten years, so much that uh, I, I think I need a beat to, I still think it's brilliant and I love it, but. <laughs> yeah, we'll give you a pass. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your favorite Disney character? Peter Pan. Favorite Disney movie? Peter Pan. <laughs> and do you have a favorite Disney park memory? Oh, so many. What would I want to, if I could take a time machine back, what would I want to go back to? Well, there's been different periods in my life, but for sure what stands out to me is the first time I saw Fantasmic when I was working as a, as a cast member and I got to take the night off and got to wander over there. I mean, I think getting chills would be the understatement of my life. I thought it was, I couldn't believe it was so phenomenal. People, people have been talking about it forever. And uh, I finally wandered over to the other side of the park after getting off of work and changing back into my civilians. I think I was just blown away. So that's the fullest, you know, memory. I think, there, of course, there's little childhood memories that are what instilled the deep love of the park, like seeing the little... I always stop at Main Street. There's little lights that flash in the trees, the old-fashioned little Tivoli Terrace lights. And as a little girl... I used to stop and point up and go, fairies in the trees. I really believe there were fairies <laughs> in the trees. So that's also a memory that stays with me. But, yeah, fantastic seeing it for the first time. But the Fantastic is a great show. I, um, you guys have a way better version than we do in Florida, for the record. Oh, yeah? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's so much better in California yeah. than it is in Florida. That's interesting. Where, where is it? You guys have the rivers of America, right? 
We do, but we have uh, Fantasmic is at Hollywood Studios in Florida, and it's in like its own amphitheater. It's it's completely uh, different. Okay. It's yeah. completely different. It's floating uh, on the water. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is on the water, but it's just it's just a different. It's a different show. It's just completely different. It's 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 good. I love it in Florida, but uh, having seen it in California, it's way better out there. Yeah, that that final part with the Mark Twain and all the characters. Yeah, we miss that. So great. It's so fantastic. Well, we want to thank you for coming on. We appreciate you taking the time out of your out of your night tonight and and joining us in the Tiki Hut. Uh, But before we let you go, you know, go ahead and let our let our listeners know where they can find you, uh, your website, social media, and all that sort of stuff. Um, sure. I got really lucky. It's just my name uh, at all of them. So just at Cat Cressida on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Cat with a K, Cressida with a C. Um, I have a website, which is um, I'm fortunate to have, which is really well built and a lot of fun. I'm so grateful to you guys. I've been a fan of you guys since I first joined the social media conversation last year. I really do think you guys do extraordinary work. It's it's so clear you have a love. And I would like to ask, I don't know if any of your guests have ever turned it around, but what inspired all of you guys to do this? What was the impetus to put together such a great podcast? It kind of happened by accident. (laughs) It kind of did. I started a blog and like a website basically just because I didn't have an outlet to like talk about my passion for Disney because like a lot of my friends and family were just kind of like, oh God, he's talking about this ride again or something is down for refurb and it it just, it drove them nuts. And so I started on social media and stuff and I met Sean and Alan and Sean kind of said, hey, uh, what do you, I think about doing like a podcast and I was extremely unsure um just because of my speech impediment and my insecurities and then he kind of talked me into it i said well we kind of need a third host and uh we talked to alan and uh he said yes and it just kind of went from there it was very organic what what about you guys sean and alan yeah i just you know for myself it was sort of the same way where you know i've been going to disney since i was eight years old and i just loved Disney World and talking about it. My wife's a fan, but it's she's not a hardcore fan or anything like that. And I just wanted a, an outlet to talk to other people. And I wanted and I wanted to do a podcast, but I didn't want to do it on my own. I didn't want to just you know talk into a microphone and, and people just listen to my own opinion on things for half hour, whatever it is. And I wanted other people to talk about it. I wanted multiple voices so you get different opinions. And you know we're real. We're going to tell you the truth. We're not going to lie just for the sake of uh, for whatever reason. You know just. We want people to come to us for an honest opinion, and that's you know that's why I wanted to start it. Sure. Yeah, a lot of the same for me. I you know some of the earliest pictures of me as a baby are in a stroller at Disney World. I've I've, I've been lucky and fortunate to go the majority of my life, even long before I remember going. And so it's always been kind of this deep seated love for me. And you know I, I got involved in social media and kind of stumbled across i didn't realize the disney community was as big as it was especially on social media and i kind of stumbled yeah, into it and yeah, it's pretty it's pretty phenomenal yeah there's there's a lot what of this crazies out there <laughs> have you recently been like been to disney in the last 10 years and how did what's your point of view having fallen in love with it from disney world coming out to disneyland I was out at Disneyland in 2012. That was my first visit. I have a I have a really good friend. Actually, she introduced my wife and I, who who works at Disneyland, and she oh, wow. uh, so we went out there and visited her. And I mean that it's it's the same but different. And 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 I know that sounds silly, but it's it's true. It's you you walk in and and you still get that same that same love that I feel when I walk into the Magic Kingdom. But then. Pirates of the Caribbean's in, in a different spot or, you know, Star Tours doesn't even belong in the park, but there it is. And, you know, Big Thunder Mountain is like a mirror image. You know, it goes it goes the wrong way. It goes a different direction. And so it's the same but different. And, and the history there, you know, knowing that Walt walked there is you kind of get chills a little bit. And, you know, it's 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 fantastic. I love Disney. I love I love Walt Disney World. And, and being from North Carolina, that's that's always going to be my home park because that's where I've been going my whole life. But um, having visited Disneyland, it's it's just special. <laughs> that's awesome. Although I'm going to be a defensive Disneylander and say, what do you mean it's in the wrong direction? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean it goes in a different direction. It goes it goes the opposite said, way. You said wrong. 
<laughs> I said wrong, but then I said different. I said different. I, uh, I corrected myself. You know, it's it's just it's different, you know. And, but it's not bad at all. It's, it's I love it. It's such a and we got to stay at the Grand Californian, which is an absolutely gorgeous resort. And, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, getting it is. to to walk in in California Adventures is, is a lot of fun. Uh, you know, they put a lot of money into. I never got to. See it in its original existence, uh, you know, and they put a lot of money into it, bringing cars in and, and kind of redoing um, the, the Paradise Pier area a little bit yeah. and changing things yeah. around. And I can see, you know, I've, I've read about how it, it, it wasn't a great park when it first opened, but I think it is now. Yeah, you want to know what its cast members used to as, call as it? As an outsider that's only been once. Have you ever <laughs> sure. heard what the cast members Fondly, not so fondly referred to Cal- DCA when it first opened. I hope this doesn't get me kicked out of ever doing Disney <laughs> job again. <laughs> no, right? I haven't heard. You have to tell us. A waste of a perfectly good parking lot. Oh, oh, oh. man! Ouch. Yeah. You know what? It's probably it's probably pretty accurate though. From everything I've ever read about the original, you know, the original existence is that's pretty accurate. Well, you got to hand it mad mad props for wanting to grow, wanting to build something fresh, not wanting to be the same old tread, wanting to do something special. I think there always was a question mark to a few of us. Okay, interesting. People have come all the way to Southern California to experience Southern California, and now we're building a park inside right. Southern California as an homage <laughs> to Southern California. Right, yeah. <laughs> we, we don't want to experience actual Southern California. We want to experience the Disney... Homogenized version yeah, of Southern yeah. California. You're on Hollywood Boulevard, and it's adorable, and it's a Disney-fied miniature version. But why not just go experience Hollywood Boulevard? And you know, I mean, I think I'm, I'm not alone in that sentiment. I, I love the park. I've grown to really appreciate, and they've done a beautiful job. This is their third. This is their third version of it, actually, of uh, you know remodeling it. And I think they've done an incredible job. And again. To every Imagineer that worked on it, mad props, because you already were working against a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And now I think it's beautiful. I, I always encourage people to go enjoy it because there's so many special attractions over there. But it took a while for it to find its footing, for sure. That's okay. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. <laughs> yep. yep. And I give them credit for recognizing maybe this wasn't, Maybe we didn't do this right. Let's yeah. fix it. So, you know, yeah, there's, was, there's a certain amount to be said for that. Absolutely. I was the voice on a, a very early attraction that lasted, I think, six months before they realized that it wasn't, you know, as inspired an idea as other things could be, which was called uh, Superstar Limo. I was just going to say, were you on Superstar Limo? That's awesome. I didn't know that. What did you, what were you on Superstar Limo? I was the voice. I was the. You were the voice. Okay, I don't. I I never got to experience that attraction. Obviously, it didn't last very long. It did not last long. (laughs) Well, I mean, it was. It was all about. I mean, it was. It was. It was like paparazzi, wasn't that basically what it was? You were just being chased by the paparazzi. You literally. You were. You were the. Well, you were a tourist on a limousine. It was kind of like Mr. Toe's Wild Ride gone through Hollywood, and Lisa was your ditzy limo driver, and she, you know, she was a, a valley girl. Like, oh my God, there's Antonio Bandana, say hi, Antonio! Someone thought that this was a great idea for a while. Um, so, yeah, I never even got to go on it. it. It opened, and then it closed. And I think that my lucky star is that that wasn't like, oh, we can't hire that voice talent, because the last ride she did closed within six months. <laughs> <laughs> That's not your fault, though. Right. Yeah, it's not your fault. All you did was the voice. You didn't create the thing. That ended up turning into a Monsters, Inc., right? There you go. I can I can hide behind that the way I do even when people want to throw me credit. I didn't credit it. It wasn't me. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But, you know, they were trying. Trying to figure it, figure it out. Build a new park. What's it going to be so it's not copying Florida? So, yeah. And now Florida's going to copy you by putting... <laughs> putting a car well no that's not true they're not doing cars there was a big rumor they were going to put cars in florida but they didn't i guess so oh, okay. everybody gets star wars though hooray yeah. star wars hey i'm so excited for that i would be happy if they just put it in florida personally but. yeah i think there was a certain i think the i think the florida the east coast people were thrilled about the idea i don't think the west coast people were as thrilled uh 
there's just you're losing a lot of history there. Whereas those of us oh, on the East Coast are like, take Hollywood Studios, do what you have to do. <laughs> don't don't touch mm-hmm. Tower of Terror and don't touch the Rock and Roller Coaster, but do whatever you got to do. Mm-hmm. At this point. Yeah, no, it's really heartbreaking to lose so much of what Walt built. And yeah, um, it really is. But but you know, change I guess is is part of it. And you know, not that I knew Walt by any means, but you know, he was always saying. You know, it's never gonna, it's never gonna stop changing. It's always gonna, it's always gonna grow and, and adapt. So, the the optimist in me likes to look at it that way. I mean, that's the only way you can. Yeah, people at use it, that really. quote, but I think there's a lot of other quotes they're forgetting along with that quote. No, there are. I, that's why I said the, <laughs> the 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 optimist in me tries to look at it that way. Because I mean, you, you you just the decision's made. There's nothing we can do, you right. know, other than just try to look forward to what's coming. And and remember fondly the things that we lost. That's all we can do. Right. So. Yeah. So thanks, you guys, for sharing that little bit. I'm I'm glad to know you. And I hope when your listeners hear this, it's not, oh, my gosh, it's the three-hour podcast where she just went on about Shakespeare for an hour. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week. But first, we want to thank our sponsor, Kingdom Strollers. Kingdom Strollers provides premium stroller and crib rentals delivered straight to your door. For more information, visit KingdomStrollers.com or call 407-271-5301. Also, head over to MyFantasyBands.com where you can get customized Magic Band covers for your next Walt Disney World trip. And if you use the code EnchantedTikiTalk20, you can get 20% off your order. That's EnchantedTikiTalk20 to get 20% off your order at MyFantasyBands.com. Please let us know what you thought of the show. Comment in the notes at EnchantedTikiTalk.com. Email us at podcast at EnchantedTikiTalk.com. And leave us a message on the Tiki Talk hotline, which is 256-4MY-TIKI. That's 256-469-8454. Please like us on Facebook. Check out our store at redbubble.com. And follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at Tiki Talk Podcast. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please take the time to rate us on iTunes. And you can find me on Twitter at 1MinuteDisneyDream. That's 1MIN, Disney Dream, MouseWorldVacations.com, and MousePros.com. And you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Daily. And you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm at Norman Bates. That's N-O-R-M-N-B, the number eight and the letter S. Thanks for listening this week. For Sean and Keith and our special guest, Kat Cressida, I'm Alan, and this has been Enchanted Tiki Talk. Aloha. Enchanted Tiki Talk has been brought to you by MousePros.com. Log on to MousePros.com to plan your perfect Disney vacation. And by Kingdom Strollers. Visit KingdomStrollers.com on your next visit to Orlando or call 407-271-5301 for premium stroller and crib rentals. Thanks for listening to Enchanted Tiki Talk.